Let me ask you, on a scale of 1 to 10, where is your faith life? 1 being uh, a joke, 10 being as strong as defensive tackle for the Jacksonville Jaguars. As people of faith, we are not alone if we find ourselves struggling somewhere between 3 and 7 or even 2 and 8. Obviously, the early Christians that the apostle who wrote a letter to the Hebrews was facing, uh, were facing, was the same exact continuum swing of faith that we have. And so there's power and there's solace in knowing that we are not alone in our own faith journey and the continuum of faith that we swing back and forth on. They were worrying, as do we, whether or not God will actually care and protect them. They were being persecuted for their faith, unlike us, and they were, in those days, urgently waiting for the second coming of Jesus. Jesus had not yet come by the third generation, and so they had issues to face regarding their own specific understanding of God and faith. As we face our own sometimes strong and sometimes flimsy faith lives, we can hope by reading back through chapter 11 of Hebrews to see that they still sustain their faith even still. From Hebrews 11, 1 through 2, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Indeed, by faith, our ancestors received approval. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. This is the word of God. I remember as a young minister sitting with a family in a surgery waiting room whose wife and mother was facing a very serious and crucial surgery to remove a malignant tumor from her spine. The doctor had told them that she may not make it through the surgery, and if she did, she may, in fact, not be able to walk afterward. As you can imagine, they were completely anxious, scared out of their wits, and I tried to assure them as best I knew how, but didn't quite know what to say. I wanted to give them some hope that God would be with her and the surgeons and nurses in the operating room, that God's peace and wellness and healing would be with her. But I also knew that I ran the risk of building up a false hope by claiming too much. If things didn't go well, I was setting them up to blame God for not doing what I had just said God should do, or even worse, to blame themselves for not having enough faith on their own 
to ensure that her, his wife and their mother would be healed. If only I had more faith, they might say. If only I had more faith, I would not have left my husband who had not yet gotten sober. If only I had more faith, I might have gone to college. If only I had more faith, my child would have gotten well. You fill in the blanks. It's a terrible thing to ask of yourself. If only I had more faith then. This kind of thinking turns faith into some sort of spiritual currency that enables us to face whatever is before us depending on how much of it we have in our savings accounts. The more faith we have, the more we get for what we pray for. Then, if what we are hoping and praying for doesn't happen, it must mean either that we are overdrawn or our faith currency is counterfeit. The fact is that we really don't need that much at all. Enough faith, and you can move mountains, Jesus said. But before he said that, he preceded it with, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, then you could move mountains. And a mustard seed is like a grain of salt. It's that small. We think that our faith must be equivalent to the Bill Gates Foundation in order to move anything, but Jesus is saying it only takes that much. And the mountains he was talking about moving were those anchored in our hearts and brains more than those that literally rise up out of the ground. The mountains of doubt and skepticism and cynicism and hopelessness and that Mount Everest of all mountains, the mountain of despair, that seems to sometimes rise up out of nowhere and cast its dark shadow over the valleys of our lives and seems absolutely insurmountable. But Jesus said with a tiny amount of faith, we can move them. A tiny amount and we can even move ourselves. This well-known verse, most of us who grew up in the church memorized it, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Really, assurance is better translated substance. It comes from hypostasis. It means the substance upon which something is. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And it And it's saying that it then goes through this long chapter of ancestral history, beginning with Abraham and Sarah, how with faith they left their father's house to the land that God would show them. Then Moses, then all of the ancestors going one after the other in historical chronology, how they had faith and how they were moved through that faith to go to a place for which they did not know or did not have full knowledge or did not even see. 
We who resist leaving the house until we have the exact GPS coordinates locked on our Google Maps, we who can't imagine just going to some unknown destination without first researching it on Wikipedia, we who have trouble asking for a date because it is just too risky, so we'll just go meet up somewhere, yes, we just might learn something here. By faith, our ancestors were able to find the courage and the stamina to head out to a new and unknown place. And the faith they had that drove them was in the one true God who would lead them there himself. Even when it sometimes it looked like they were on their own, they were not. That's the conviction of things not seen. It's a slippery slope, this faith thing that we are called to build our lives on, but it's the only true way, I think, to live a life, a full life, a whole life, a wholehearted life of hope and courage in a world of risk and uncertainty. It should beg the question, then, If only this much is needed, where do we find it? Let me first tell you where we will not find it. In my own experience, as well as through the experiences of others, we cannot find it in our heads and through our minds. I'm not saying that our heads and minds are not important They are, in many ways, like the main frames that hold the right software for the computer to operate correctly. However, our minds are not the totality of who we are, and they serve to keep us from faith as much as they serve to bring us to it. In fact, our minds are most useful after we have taken the leap of faith than before, as St. Augustine said, Faith seeks understanding. Faith first, then our minds go to work trying to make sense of it. We take that leap, and then we start thinking. You know, it's kind of like getting married. If you thought too much about it, but you do it, you leap into it, and then your heads go to work. How can I change that person into my image? It takes trust and courage. There's not a word for it. Feelings, really more than thoughts. Hope, hope more than anything. Those things that come from another part of us than our brains. I'm not talking about belief here. It's something else entirely. Belief is something we can write down on a piece of paper like the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Virgin. I'm not talking about belief here. Those are brainy things. I'm talking about faith. For any, for, for, for the purposes of faith, I'm talking about where it's found, not in the brain, but for lack of any better words, our heart and our gut. 
I don't know if it's literally true that it is found there, but it resonates there at least. Faith is found here in an aching for something that we do not have, yet we know it is the answer to all we've been searching for. Faith is a longing for home, even when you've lived in the same house all your life. Faith is yearning to finally be ourselves, our true selves, not the pretense self, not the covered self, not the hiding self, not the afraid self, the real true self that we are, that God created us to be in God's image. Faith is yearning for that. So in this sense, I think the best word for it is hope. It is hope. Some people, especially New Age people, claim that there are neurons in the heart and the gut that have their own sense of consciousness. A lot of neurologists and scientists say that's not true. There's a difference between a neuron and a brain cell. When you claim that our gut is telling us something or that we know something in our hearts, we are speaking about just that phenomenon. The reality is that there is this systemic relationship between hearts and guts and livers and legs and arms and brains so that they're all in this interactive conversation systemically. One comes, now the other reacts. Then the other comes and that reacts. Did you know that our bodies sense fright faster than our brains do? And in that moment, our bodies begin to emit the hormonal fright, flight response, our hearts race, that goes faster than our brain's consciousness of it. Those bodily sensations are sent to our brain and then our brain gets it and then responds accordingly. Oh, I got to make sense of this. So there's this conversation. Yet in our world, mostly what we do is brain work right? Not body work. I'm not a scientist, obviously, but let me say, at least metaphorically, that the seed of faith is found here. The assurance of things hoped for That's why I love that Emily Dickinson poem, Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the song without the tune and never stops at all. It's not whistling in the dark. It's not living in a delusion that things are going to be perfect no matter what. There's this theory, if you've ever read Jim Collins' Good to Great, called the Stockdale Paradox. It's named after Admiral Jim Stockdale, who was a POW prisoner, a prisoner of war in Vietnam for eight years. He was tortured, 
over 20 times and never had much reason to believe that he would survive the prison camp. Yet, Stockdale said he never lost hope. I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event in my life, which in retrospect, I would not trade. Okay, now the paradox. While Stockdale had remarkable faith in the unknowable, he noted it was always the most optimistic of his prison mates who failed to make it out alive. Did you get that? It was the most optimistic of the prisoners who failed to get out alive. They were the ones who said, we're going to get out by Christmas, and when Christmas came and they didn't, they said it will be Easter, and then Easter came and didn't. Okay, Thanksgiving, and then Thanksgiving came and not. Oh, this time it will be Christmas, and then after that Christmas, they're still not out, and their hearts were broken. They couldn't face the reality of the situation, preferring the ostrich approach or power of positive thinking, which happens to be in the news these days. They could not, in fact, see the truth. Stockdale did not lose hope, but he also saw the adversity that they were facing. He chose instead of just sitting there hoping for something to happen to go to work. He created a tapping system so that prisoners could communicate with each other. He developed a milestone system that helped them deal with torture. He sent intelligence information to his wife, hidden in the seemingly innocent letters that he wrote home. So the Stockdale paradox goes, you must retain your faith that you will prevail in the end regardless of the difficulties and you must confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. As persons of faith, as a person of faith, I would like to ratchet up that paradox to read We must retain faith that God will prevail in the end, regardless of the difficulties. And we must confront the most brutal facts of our current reality, whatever they may be. This kind of faith is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about this morning, and it's best understood as hope. The hope that even though we do not know what tomorrow brings, God will be in it still. It is the hope that no matter what our condition in life There is a new possibility, a new opportunity to start again, no matter our age, to grow, to learn, and to encounter God in ways that will blow your mind. It is the hope that no matter how terrible something is, God can use it to bring about something new, something good, something beautiful even, like a mustard tree that grows up tiny. I've met amazing people of faith that have faced the most terrible circumstances and tragedies in their lives, but never lost hope that one day, somehow, God was going to turn their loss into something good and redemptive. 
They were resurrection people. People who had hope and joy and faith even in the face of death that God would have the last word. You ever met those kind of people? Resurrection people? They come into a room and their energy is so big everyone is immediately drawn to them. What would it be that we could be like them? Frederick Nietzsche commented, I'd believe in a resurrected Christ if I saw more resurrected Christians walking around. Why does this grace and joy in the resurrected Christ not shine out of us all the time? Maybe it's because we don't like that second part of the Stockdale paradox. The reality part. That the way to this kind of resurrected hope only comes if we are willing to face the reality of death. The death of all the little hopes in our lives that we live by, the death of even ourselves, our egos, our plans, our false selves we have constructed on that house of cards that we have built to stand on. Biblical hope calls us to stand at the foot of the cross, which is where we will find the beginning mustard seed of our hope and faith. From the faith of that in the reality of death, God brings new things to bear. We can only get to this new kind of hope through the ashes and ruins of our own crosses. On our knees, crying inconsolably and laughing hysterically almost at the same time. Only there can we see most clearly through the eyes of faith that the cross, the most terrible and tragic act in human history, if Jesus was indeed the Son of God, only there can we see that the cross is not the last word. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, they said. We had hoped that he was the Messiah, they said. We had hoped that he was going to get us out of this mess, they said. Now look at him hanging there, a poor, pitiful imposter on that cross. You're telling me that's our hope? Really? But two days later, hope sprung forth from the grave of death and hasn't stopped springing forth since. Even if it's hard to see, it's there. If we can learn to see it through the eyes of our heart, the seed of pain, yes, but even more, the seed of all joy and grace and love. We have to open up to it finally. We have to discover it And it's what makes life a blessing more than a burden. That much. When the surgeon came out to talk to the family after the operation, 
He brought them some hope that she had made it through surgery, although he said she would not walk again. If she makes it. Not to give them too much hope. The perfect ending would be to say that in six months she had healed and had in fact found her gait and was walking again, but the truth is that she died two days later from complications. I was worried about them, their lost hopes. Did that mean that they would lose their faith too? But I shouldn't have been. On the day they buried their mother and wife, crying in grief, they were also laughing in joy. And they sang with the rest of the congregation the opening hymn, Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of My Mind, Heart. Naught be all else to me save that thou art thou my best thought by day or by night waking or sleeping thy presence my light maybe it was the perfect ending after all <laughs>